This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson. I'm the creator of FinTech Takes, and I am delighted to be joined today by a very special guest. We have Scott Sanborn, who is the CEO of Lending Club. Scott, thank you for hopping on. Thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, Excited to be here. No, this is great. And it's timely that you're here, actually, because there are a few topics that I want to pick your brain on that I know you and I are sort of philosophically aligned on. So the podcast at times may turn into a bit of a rant, probably more on my part than on your part, but looking forward to a good conversation. Before we do that, though, for folks who may not be familiar, would you mind doing just a real quick introduction for yourself and then uh, obviously Lending Club? Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com slash fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. So I'm the CEO of Lending Club. The you know exec summary there is we were founded back in 2007. That was before AI was a buzzword, before fintech was a buzzword, really with the idea that you can use data and technology to improve the experience and improve the outcomes in financial services. Because at that time, financial services had not yet been disrupted. And, you know, it works. We've become a leading provider of personal loans. We make it very easy for the more than half of all Americans who are carrying high-cost credit card debt to save money. And there have been numerous studies that have shown that we're making credit more affordable and more accessible Over time, we've added other categories. We have an auto refinance business. Same thing. If you bought a car to use car dealer, we we can save you money. And more recently, in February of 21, we moved into banking with the acquisition of a bank. And we, which I hope we'll talk about more today, we're building a brand that's about winning when our members win and creating experiences that are really smart, simple, rewarding across lending, spending, and savings. Awesome. No, that is great. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, acquisition of the bank because purely on a fintech nerd level, you guys being one of the few fintech companies to acquire and successfully integrate a bank charter and bank business has just been a really interesting experiment to kind of watch from afar and see the way that it sort of transformed your company. So I am very much looking forward to getting into that. The other thing that folks, I think, probably know about Lending Club, but if you don't, you should look into some of the, the work that Lending Club has done You guys are very focused on financial health. And obviously, as you sort of referenced before, the core sort of value proposition that you offer is around sort of reducing the cost of debt, making debt more accessible. And you do a lot of work and a lot of like actual research into the state of consumer financial health, the sort of changing behaviors and habits of different segments of the market. So I guess to start with, I'd love to get kind of the updated report card from you on sort of what are you seeing in consumer financial health these days? What are the the sort of headline uh, trends that you're seeing? As you mentioned, we're really focused on, you know, our core product that we entered the market with is taking people who didn't pay off their credit card last month and saying, hey, you have a loan. You might not think of it as a loan, but it is. And it's not a very good one. 
Yep. And we were getting this question, you know, why do these people have credit card debt and what are they doing? There's this perception that it's really just low income consumers that are carrying credit card debt when the reality is it's literally more than half of all Americans do not pay their credit card off in full. Yeah. So we started, you know, digging into that and back in March of 2020, so, you know, more than three years ago now, we've been tracking financial health and it, tracking it based on how customers themselves perceive their financial health. So independent from the stats you see from the Fed or Moody's or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you're seeing is more and more people are saying that they are living paycheck to paycheck. And that's happening across all income brackets. And, you know, right now, I mean, we're living in a really, really, you know, the word unprecedented has been overused of late, but we're living in an unprecedented time where that fits, you, know, yeah. you had you had COVID, the shutdown, the stimulus, all these categories of spending went away, savings ballooned, trillions of dollars flooded into the system, and then the restrictions came off. And that's all kind of, there was this revenge spending built up. And, you know, we're we're at the tail end of that, right? We've now seen several years of inflation outstripping wage growth for pretty much 80% of the income brackets. Their excess savings is gone. And you're starting to see that show up in retail sales, people shifting their behaviors. You're starting to see that show up in credit. So what we're seeing is kind of the tail end of, of that benefit of excess savings really come back to people realizing that, you know, doing the same thing they were doing two or three years ago now costs them a lot more. And there's varying estimates out there, but I think Moody's has it at $720 more per month for the same goods and services that they were buying only two years ago. It is really interesting, actually, because you mentioned the idea that consumers across all income brackets struggle with debt, carry high levels of revolving debt, have seen their savings been depleted, And it's actually kind of fascinating because your sort of target segment, as I understand it, is really those sort of high FICO, high debt, oftentimes sort of higher income consumers where, you know, you really can't add a lot of value by helping them, you know, kind of pay off their debt or kind of get into a better financial situation. And it's kind of an interesting time for that segment in a way, because a lot of the, I think, still positive economic news for a change is actually concentrated, as I understand it, more at the bottom of the income ladder. So when we talk about sort of relatively full employment and talk about sort of wage growth, a lot of that is happening at the lower end. But I kind of, as you highlight, consumers that for a long time have been doing relatively well are actually starting to get squeezed a little bit more. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah. I mean, I guess a couple comments on that. So one, you're right. What we see and, you know, is true across the industry. You have this idea that high income people don't need debt. That is really only true once you get into the very, very top level of income, right? The people who say, I'll just buy my car with cash, right? Right. Up until you get into that, you know, true, let's call it true wealth, higher income basically just means higher debt. You can afford a nicer car, so you buy a bigger car. You can afford to send your kids to private school, so you do. You know, you can afford a bigger house, so you have a bigger mortgage. So that segment of customer that, you know, call it, you're making $120,000 a year, you should be doing pretty good, but it means you have higher debt. And now with rates going up, that's putting a squeeze, right? The TransUnion had an estimate that just the rate burden on existing debts is causing those costs to go up. 
by about $150 a month more. So just the cost of debt. And so the thing that's unique about credit cards that's different from a lot of other expenses, you know, your, your rent is fixed. Credit cards, the rate varies and your balance varies and the amount you've got to pay. What is the minimum required payment varies from issuer to issuer based on their terms and the balance you've got. So consumers are kind of juggling. I might have five different credit cards that have five different min, min payments due on a bunch of different dates. Like how much should I pay off of each of these when based on how I see my cash flow? It's actually pretty complicated. So for us, we say, look, we'll pay off all those credit cards. We'll pay them off directly, you know, as part of the application process, give you one simple payment. And now we're working on something that's actually a tool to help them, you know, because we're not under the illusion that they won't, that they'll cease using those cards. Sure. They're going to use those cards. How do we help them stay on top of that and manage future spend? So that's an experience that we're working on today. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's, it kind of touches on, I think, again, sort of these important differences between different customer segments, because again, you know, lower income consumers have high levels of debt relative to income and stuff as well. But the tools that you build around different customer segments are different depending on sort of what their circumstances are and what opportunities present themselves. And I've always been kind of fascinated with these high FICO, high debt, you know, consumers with relatively high incomes, because I I would guess, and tell me if I'm off base here, the ability to like meaningfully change the trajectory that they're on from a financial health and wealth building sort of perspective is very different. And I would assume much greater for these segments, right? Because they're carrying high levels of debt. They may have sort of, I'll just use myself as an example, like grown up in a household where the house didn't have as much money. And so you sort of your spending would kind of just keep track with your income. But then as you start to do better, your income goes up and without really thinking about your spending sort of goes with it. And I, I would guess that like for these consumers, there is theoretically a pretty big delta between what they're spending versus what they could be spending and the opportunity to build wealth or get on a more solid financial footing if they can sort of get a better handle on that. So I would assume, as you referenced before, with some of the new stuff you're working on, like what happens after they pay off their credit card debt is kind of the key to unlocking that, right? That's right. That was one of the key drivers of us acquiring the bank. You know, there are some very obvious financial drivers in that it, you know, unlocked a whole new revenue stream and allowed us to be more resilient and profitable. Yeah. But on the strategic level for the customer, we said, look, we're just helping them with one piece of the puzzle, which is lending. Right. How do we help them with spending and savings? And you're exactly right. These customers have the ability to meet their financial obligations. However, the banking system, the way it is set up, the incentives of typical banks are not aligned with different, you know, positive financial outcomes for customers. And so there isn't a lot of activity out there to say, okay, look, I'm saving you, let's take us. I'm saving you $80 a month off of your car loan, right? Times 12, $960 a year over four years, right? That's close to $4,000 I'm going to save you. Is that just going to disappear out the door? And, you know, because you, or can I help you create a pocket for that savings put it away so that at the end of your car loan, you actually have a savings built up. And oh, by the way, I'm going to pay you a market leading rate on that savings, right? And build a nest egg. So that was one of the drivers for us is to move just beyond, okay, I can help you with lending, but if I'm not helping you with your spending and savings habits, 
All I'm doing is lowering the cost of debt and, you know, hoping you take care of the rest. So this is getting into the rant portion for me, at least, because the savings thing triggers what I think is a really interesting thought and observation that I've had, particularly as we've gone through this sort of set of rising rates that we've been dealing with as an industry. And I'll just use a personal example from myself. I was a customer for a long time of a large bank. I will not name them. And I had a savings account with them. That savings account was probably a little bit not really worth it in some ways because rates were really low, but it's just a nice place to kind of keep some money. And as rates started going up, I wasn't really paying attention because I'm busy and have little kids at home and was doing other things. And without me really noticing, which is kind of embarrassing to admit because I work in financial services and I should have been on top of this, suddenly rates were way higher than what I was, uh, what I had remembered I was getting paid last time I had checked my savings account. So I went in and I'll be honest with you, again, despite knowing this industry fairly well and knowing the dynamics and the incentives at play, I kind of hoped, foolishly maybe, that they were going to surprise me with like a higher interest rate when I logged in. And, And honestly, candidly, I was going to be willing to accept a lower than maximum rate if that had happened, right? So I think at the time, the best you could do... And you were still getting basis points. I Yes, yes. So I was getting like 0.6% or something, which was really not any different than what I'd been getting when rates were zero or near zero. And I was like, I think the best you could do among any of the providers out there was like 3.75, maybe something like that. And I was thinking in my head as I was logging in, like, okay, I have this hope that maybe they've done this and it would be great. And even if they've given me like two, two and a half percent, like I almost felt like I would be grateful to them for having done that and recognized my long term standing and value to them. And I'd be like, oh, you know, it's cool. I won't open up another account and go chase that extra one percent because that's not so important to me that I'll go do that. They had kept it at rock bottom levels. I don't think it had moved an inch from where it was when I opened the thing before when the rates were basically zero. And I can't really express to you how mad I was in that moment when I saw that happening. And so, of course, I closed my account. I opened up a new one. I moved it over. It actually didn't take that long because of digital banking and all the sort of wonders that we have today. And okay, so I'll end my rant by asking this question. What is this dynamic that drives that behavior? Because I don't think this bank, I think I like to think I'm a relatively good customer. I don't think this is the outcome they were looking for. I think they're lucky I'm not mentioning them by name, but clearly a process led them to this point. So like, what's your take on that? And what have you seen kind of compared to what you guys are doing in the market? You know, we didn't spend any time on my background, but I'm a, by trade, was a consumer marketer. And mm, you are okay. hanging on the thing that most amazed me when I came into this space. You, Alex Johnson, are what's known quite affectionately in the industry as sleepy money. And you just woke (laughs) up. Yes. And this is not unique to your institution. In fact, it is endemic to the entire banking system, which is that the longer you've been the customer of a bank, the more likely you are to be paid less on your savings and to be charged more for your loans than a new customer to the institution. Yeah. I will say that again because it is so bonkers. The longer you've been with your bank, the more likely it is that you're getting paid less in your savings and charge more for your loans. It's nuts. And it all comes down to the fact that the driver of bank choice used to be up until only very, very recently because COVID has accelerated many, many trends, this being one of them, the driver of your choice in bank was the location of the branch. Yeah. So banks didn't need better products and services. They just needed better locations. 
right? And so what that led to is you go in, you sign up with the bank, you set up your bill pay, you do all these other things, and you just forget about it. You just assume you're being taken care of. Yeah. And you don't even bother shopping around because look, not that long ago when we started, the process of getting a personal loan was, you know, you had to go and say, first of all, you often had to bank with the bank. You couldn't get a loan from right. many banks if you weren't a customer of the bank. So right. right away, you're shut down there. Let's say you had multiple accounts. Okay. You would have to basically fill out a PDF. Yep. You know, this was not that long ago. Oh, it really wasn't. I remember this. Yeah. Yes. Send it in. And within a week, you would get an answer and your rate, if you were approved, was blank. Pick a yep. number. Yep. 17%. So what's happening now? Well, without hurting your credit score, you can go online and compare yourself you know, you fill out a form and check your rate across multiple lenders. It'll be based on your risk and you can have the money in your account the next day. And so people are starting to realize that, you know, they don't need to be stuck. And this sleepy money, this <laughs> warp <laughs> system, I think is really, really ripe for disruption. And we certainly plan to be one of the companies doing so. It has been demonstrated through academic studies that at what you said is exactly right. The longest tenured customers at banks tend to get the lowest rates on their deposits and some of the highest rates on lending. And translating that into sort of bank balance sheet business speak, when you see banks talk about like deposit betas, as an example, right, that is essentially a very sort of dry technical way of saying we are and I, I'm trying not to be too uncharitable, but it's hard. We are taking advantage of our customers that are not paying attention to keep our rates lower, meaning the deposit beta, the amount of an increase from the Fed that's getting passed on to customers or not, is a function of them essentially, yeah, being sleepy and not paying attention and not watching. And I'm interested that you referenced your history as a, a marketer. I actually didn't know that about you. I come from a marketing background as well. And that moment that I realized that was happening. And again, I, I'd like to think I was relatively savvy about this stuff and I probably should have seen this coming a mile away. I was still surprised and angered about that experience. And, you know, the sort of bad brand association for this bank and, you know, the stories that I tell when I'm not recording a podcast to people when they ask which bank it was, that doesn't do them any favors. And I, I think probably makes their marketing teams a little bit upset. And I guess a question I have for you just digging in on this a little bit more is, there's sort of two different models, right? So one model would be to say, hey, we are going to be in the business of always trying to give all of our customers the best deal possible. On a, from a lending perspective, adjusted for your risk, or from a deposit perspective, particularly based on sort of what rates are available in the market, and then maybe with a little bit of a bonus based on how many deposits you're bringing to us, like we are going to price based on value, and that's it. Another model, which I sort of would expect banks to do, because I don't think most traditional banks are going to just pass on 100% of available rates or available pricing to their customers. That's just not sort of inherently the business that they're in. But I guess I was sort of hoping that in the case of this bank, they would at least be smart enough to run some analytics on their portfolio and come away looking at me going, okay, he's got relatively high balance in his savings account. He has other products with us. He has a credit card with us. He spends a lot on that card every month. He has an annual fee that he pays. You know, there's the potential to get other business with him. He's been with us for this amount of time. Like, I would think you could identify me 
as sleepy, valuable money as opposed to sleepy, not so valuable money. But they didn't even do that. There wasn't even that like exercise to go through it. And I hesitate to say, but like, it almost just seems like arrogance more than anything else, because that just seems like good business to do that. And they didn't. So I don't know. What do you think drives that? When I think about this, it's really practices. It's not bad people doing nefarious things so much as practices that have built up over time and then, frankly, become cemented in an income statement that become very, very hard to move off of. I mean, the reason why they are charging you a higher rate for your lending is because they know new customers are comparison shopping and they got to charge them a lower rate. So they're going to make up the margin there. The reason why they're not automatically raising your deposits is because, wow, when you're sitting on tens of billions of deposits and all of a sudden you're spending significantly more money to get nothing new, right? To, to To be running the same business you are, that's really painful. So it's You know, I want to be cognizant of the fact that we're starting with a blank sheet of paper. We didn't have a back book of deposits we needed to reprice. And we could actually build our brand around, hey, we are, and by the way, our kind of mission internally is Mm -hmm. to use the word disadvantage. We say relentlessly advantage our members, right? So as opposed to disadvantage them through opacity, which is what you get now. Like when we launched our deposit gathering efforts, the first Mm -hmm. product we brought to market was what we called our founders account. And this was for our former retail investing base, right? That had been oh, sure. funding loans back in the early founding. And our promise to them was, hey guys, you were here with us at the beginning. We're going to give you this account. We're going to automate, as your loans pay down, we're going to sweep them into this account. And we will guarantee you that we will always pay you the highest rate we offer in the market. Like, yeah. That's our guarantee that we stand by. And you're our loyal customer. You've been with us from the beginning. Mm-hmm. We're going to pay you a better rate than at anything we're offering out in the market. And you know that's the exact opposite of what's happening today. I mean, again, let's face it. We've never seen rates go up this far, this fast. And the impact to banks is obvious in right. the multiple bank failures uh, earlier this year. But what you're seeing today is banks are going out of their way to launch sort of what I call fake banks, right? Yeah. Fake brands so that they can avoid paying their loyal customers the market rate and only pay it to new customers, right? That's how twisted it's become. And yeah, my view, I don't, that's not sustainable, right? I think customers who know, you know, they don't want to think about this thing all the time. Similar to your story, like I don't want to have to be watching my own back. I want to know that an institution that I've been loyal to yeah. is watching my back for me. And you know, that's really embedded in the metrics that we manage to and trying to make sure that our incentives are aligned with our customer outcomes and that we're kind of delivering against this broader promise. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most. Whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations, visit www.crow.com/fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility. I'm glad that you mentioned sort of the realities of how these banks operate, right? Because I mean, you know, again, I'm not. I'm not naive. Everyone has to make money. And, you know, you talk about like net interest margin, like there's a certain amount of sort of inertia built into that model. And that's just the way that it works. 
However, I think that it is really interesting to think about you're starting with a blank piece of paper. You don't have these expectations set with investors and sort of set in your balance sheet in the way that you think about your business. And so you can sort of design something from scratch. Can you talk us through like, what are some of those metrics and how do you think about the business case for this? Like, what is the business case to always advantaging your members? The really easy way to think about it is our biggest expense is customer acquisition. If I have an existing customer who comes back to me for free, that is enormous value, right? So right there, just CAC, right? Cost of acquisition, half of our business on a monthly basis is from people who've worked with us before. That's why we have the most efficient marketing in the industry, right? So that's an obvious one. Right. The less obvious one is credit. Well, guess what? If you've paid off a loan to Lending Club before, you might look exactly like somebody else when it comes to a credit bureau, but the fact that you've come to me before, taken out a loan, and paid off that loan, you are lower credit risk than a net new customer. So lower acquisition cost, lower credit risk, How do I do more of that business? Now, I will tell you that operationalizing that then comes down to, you know, creating a, you know, because any, like, of course, Lending Club is filled with data scientists and quants who will say, well, look, the customers would be willing to pay blank. Right. So why wouldn't we just charge them blank? Price optimization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. The answer is you got to get to a place where you say, well, are we optimizing for this transaction or are we optimizing for a total value generation to the customer and then back to lending club? So the way we think about it is essentially that there's a piece of value. What are all the ways we can give value back to the customer and what value do we think is reasonable for us to take? And all of our interactions, since they're based around this customer is we're trying to really relook at, you know, so many times people say, well, this is just table stakes. This is how it's done mm-hmm. this way. And right. so we should just do it that way. And we'll go, well, yeah, what's right actually for our customers? So for example, within checking, we talk to our customers and what do they want? Well, they want a checking account where their rewards go to pay down their loan faster. Sure. Right. It's just an integrated experience that says, hey, it's not about cash back or money two days early or free ATMs. It's, I came to you to lower my cost of debt. Can you help everything that you're doing with me do that? And the answer is, yes, we can do that. I love the two factors that you mentioned specifically around customer acquisition and credit. And I just want to unpack those for a moment because it it harkens back to something you said at the beginning about sort of evolving out of a branch-based world, right? So I would assume that in a branch-based world, the way you sort of think about it as a bank is, all right, we have this sort of big, heavy expense to build a branch in this particular area. But once we do that, people drive by the branch every day. It's free advertising for us. People who live in the community work at the bank. So there's like there's this very like integrated and over time, very efficient customer acquisition vehicle that's like bringing customers in. And then by the same token, from a credit perspective, you're operating within communities and like developing a reputation within certain communities and drawing certain customers in. And so you have this sort of positive selection built in if you're building branches in the right neighborhood to sort of draw in the right sort of credit risks from the community. And then we sort of take all of that away from banks and drop them into this digital world. And suddenly, I think kind of what you're alluding to is this idea that a lot of the assumptions around 
well, how much does it cost to acquire customers? And what can we afford to do in terms of maybe disadvantaging our customers a little bit once we have them because we spent so much money in this branch banking network to draw them in? Those considerations completely have to change. And so it is a really interesting lens on it of, I mean, I love anytime anyone references positive selection and lending, I just go crazy because that's like my favorite topic. It's kind of how I view the world these days. But it's such an interesting idea that, you know, the investments we make in treating our customers fairly and helping them build good, positive financial habits come back to us in the form of no additional customer acquisition costs and significantly better customers that can outperform the way that the rest of the industry sees them. And I, we're going to talk about AI later, I promise, listeners. But I do love the idea of like proprietary data and these loops that you can build feeding a better business over time. It sounds like that's how you look at it. Yeah. And on top of that, the other real difference you get versus traditional institutions they were built up, you know, a lot of banks were formed through multiple mergers and acquisitions sure. and, you know, they're organized around channels. Yep. They're organized around products. We're organized around the customer. And if you think about what a data-driven environment enables you to do within your interaction set versus the branch-based, it's, you know, look, you're applying to get a personal loan from me, but I see you have an auto loan. And I see that I can save you money on that too. And I have all your information. So would you like me to go ahead and see if I can save you money on that too? Great, I can. Looks like my total savings for you on a monthly basis is make up a number, realistic number, 110, 120 bucks. Great. Would you like to keep keep your payment amount flat and take that 110 bucks and put it into a savings account so that you're actually building up a nest egg? Because I can also see that you've only got a couple thousand dollars in savings, right? Right, And that number should be a little bit bigger. So like our ability to do all that seamlessly in one flow, like that's what we're building towards. That just makes it, it's really centered around the customer, centered around what we know about them. It's not based on who's in the branch and you know what top-down vertical management has decided is the growth vector. So speaking of silos and sort of organizational structure, I mean, as CEO, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to be sort of cognizant of it. But I want to talk a little bit about kind of the cultural and organizational aspects to this, too, because, I mean, just rewinding the clock a little bit with Lending Club. And I, I actually covered Lending Club as a market research analyst back in your sort of P2P lending days. And... You know, I would imagine that at that time, given that it was really like one core product, it was relatively easy. I'm not going to say completely easy, but relatively easy for everyone in the organization to be like, this is what we do. This is our mission. This is how our product aligns to our mission and the incentives. Like, it's easy to do. But I would guess, and you can, I'm sure, comment on this because you've been along for the whole ride. Like, how does that challenge sort of shift as you grow? Because you're adding more products. I mean, you guys bought a bank, right? That like had people working at the bank that you brought into your culture. They probably had a different sort of organizational structure. Can you give us some like specific examples of things you do kind of culturally and organizationally to like sort of foster that mindset? Because it would seem like something that could slip away from you without you even necessarily noticing. Yeah, I mean, the, the good news is our aspiration has always been broader than the individual product. But you're right that 
if an entire org is geared around doing one thing, I think in our case, exceptionally well, we're yeah, really yeah. good at it. Yeah. But that's what most people spend most of their time thinking about. Yeah. How do you evolve the org? And it, it starts with really clarifying the mission, right? That's a big part of my job is what do we stand for? So that's why I shared at the beginning, we've moved to a place where we said, look, what we're trying to do is re relentlessly advantage our members. And we're trying to build a bank that wins when its members win. And that's going to come through an experience that has to be smart, simple, and rewarding for our members. We basically engaged with employees on this conversation. It's actually part of our product development templates. Like literally when we're developing a product, does it meet these criteria? How is this rewarding for a member? How are we rewarding our members in this interaction? And it's not just the product development roadmap, it's also what the customer care representatives think about when they're interacting with customers. We're re-looking at all of our email templates mm -hmm. and you know chat-based interactions. So it's really, what is it we're trying to stand for and how do we sell, hold ourselves accountable that we're actually delivering against that metric yes. and holding ourselves accountable when we fall down, right? That's reviewing the experiences we feel we didn't deliver. And it's working really well, actually. You are correct. It is a challenge to migrate the org's thinking, but everybody sees that this can be a very exciting feature. Yeah. And it's a brand space that nobody's owning. And I will say, I mean, I've worked at several companies, been lucky enough at certain times, and there is something too, and I'm sure you guys probably noticed this and feel this, like sometimes you come into an environment where the wheels are all sort of turning and things are going in the right direction. And everyone's pulling on the same oar. And there is kind of a magical sort of almost alchemy of like culture and like everyone just like getting excited about, you know, oh, like you had this idea for how we could do this. Well, we could one up you doing this thing. So I do think that it is possible to get to a point where you sort of cultivated that environment and it kind of almost takes on a life of its own. It's it's not easy to do, but I would imagine that like that's the feeling almost you're driving to when you're like walking around the hallways or going to meetings or whatever. That's right. If everybody's got a shared sense of what it is we're trying to get done and accomplish on behalf of customers, it's a lot easier to empower the organization to execute, right? Because everybody has a sense of what success looks like. Okay, so I want to wrap up by hitting a couple sort of hot topics, if you want. I'd love to get your take on these. The first one is very central to what we've just been talking about, but I've written about open banking in the newsletter recently, and I've actually analogized it to no-fault divorce laws in the U.S. starting in the 1970s. But the but my friend Kia Hazlitt, who I do a podcast with, is mad because she doesn't like marriage analogies in banking. But set that aside. That's more of a mergers and acquisition thing. That's not what I'm talking about. My thing is open banking the way that Director Chopra at the CFPB is envisioning it, I think, based on his public comments, is we want to make it easy for people to break up with their banks, to get out of bad marriages, so to speak. And I flash back to my recent experience moving my savings account from one bank to another. It was easy, but it wasn't as easy as it could have been. It certainly wasn't one click easy. And more than that, there was no sort of intelligent agent operating on my behalf, like monitoring the situation. So you kind of said before, like, you know, it's it's painful for most consumers and kind of going out of their way to monitor everything 24-7. Like you sort of want people watching your back for you. And I'm intrigued by the idea that with open banking and things like direct deposit switching and something that I think Andreessen Horowitz and one of their fintech newsletters called Refi Robots that could automatically refinance you. Like the idea of automation and more data connectivity 
enabling consumers to just constantly be seeking out and getting the best deal, like, A, that intrigues me. And B, if that's the world we're headed to, that would seem like a world that you guys are already pretty well prepared for because you're not, you know, you're already trimming back all the fats on, you know, yeah, we could keep this extra money because consumers probably be willing to pay it, but it's not good for them. So it's not what we're going to do. What's your sort of take on this coming open banking wave? I agree with your assessment. I don't know enough about divorce laws to agree with (laughs) That's a dangerous analogy to wander into if you don't know what you're talking about. So I understand. But I agree with your assessment. I mean, at the end of the day, what open banking is about is, you know, whose data is this? Is it the bank's data or is it the consumer's data? And to the extent that that data can be used to help them make better decisions and or get better products and services available to them. Yeah it should be available. And um, so we need to have the right protections in place, right? Because there's some risk to that. And there's certainly the risk of disruption within the banking system. But we agree with you. I mean, it's it's crazy to me, you know, when, when you do listening sessions with customers and yeah. you'll talk to somebody and they'll say, well, I've banked with, you know, insert bank name for 12 years and I've never really had any problem. I mean, you'll know which bank this is when I say this part. <laughs> and, oh, I know they've been in the news for a lot of like, bad things recently, but hasn't really affected me. And, you know, so I I guess I'm just loyal. And when you say, right, and you know, you're getting six basis points there and here's what we could offer you. It's ah, it's so hard, right? It's such a hassle. I've got to change all these things. And the reason it's hard is because just same reason it's hard to find your APR on a credit card. It's like, There are certain things that they don't want it to be too easy because it would result in changing your behavior. Mm -hmm. So we're moving there in inches without the same regulatory framework and clarity that you've got in Europe. Right. But things like, you know, we have plaid data on half of our customers and that the plaid data for for listeners who don't know what that is, we can see transaction data in their bank accounts that are not their lending club. They don't have an account with us. They get a primary account somewhere else. Yeah. We can use that data to help them. Right. We can see what's happening in their account, we know when they might be getting a cash flow pinch because they had a sudden expense and we can offer them access to credit. Or we can see that, you know, maybe they're going to need to shuffle some things around and we can send them a warning of, hey, reminder, your payment's due. You're not going to get paid again and you're running short on cash. So that's really useful for the consumer. There's no reason that shouldn't be available for them to help them make better decisions because they're not getting that information and advice in many cases from their banks. Yeah, absolutely. And I hadn't really realized you guys were such active users of open banking. What's the mechanism? Because I think this is something banks are going to have to think about in the brave new world of open banking where they're forced to share their data. What reasons are you giving customers to permission you to get access to their data? So for you guys, like, what's your entry point into kind of connecting into that broader financial picture? How do you get members to do that? It's a much easier process for multiple things. Like, Alex, do you know your routing? Like, I need to deposit my loan in your account. Mm. Do you know your routing number right. and your checking account number? You don't, but you probably know how to log into your bank account. So, yeah. okay, I need to verify your income, let's say. Do you want to go get, you know, W-2s? printouts yeah. of your pay stubs? Or do you want me to just take a look in your bank account and I can see what deposits are coming in on what size and what frequency and I can verify your income that way. So it's just much lower friction. Over time, as I mentioned, the experiences we're building, it's also going to be higher utility, which is we're just going to 
help you manage some of these expenses that are coming your way. Some of these things that you're currently doing manually, we're going to provide tools for you to make it easier for you to manage it. I think directionally, that's where everybody's going to have to head, whether they want to or not. All right. Last question. I couldn't let you go without asking you a little bit about generative AI, as I hinted at earlier. Everybody's favorite topic, everybody's topic that they love to sort of speculate on me in particular, since I'm not actually building anything. I just sort of play with the tools and then write sort of highly theoretical pieces that probably won't happen. You guys, I imagine, are looking at the technology, probably like everybody else, evaluating it. What have you seen so far? Anything jump out to you as like interesting potential? And I guess with the lens of now being a regulated bank, does that like influence your thinking at all in terms of like where it might make sense versus where it might not make sense? Yeah, starting with your last point, yes. Uh, yeah. But, you know, taking a step back, there's been talk in the space of AI for quite some time. So just to separate what you mean versus what's out there is like, you know, we use dozens and dozens of models to power decision. Who should we market to? What ad should we show them? Can we make them an offer? What price is the offer? Do I need to verify their identity, their income, their employment? Yep. You know, how should I service them? Those models developed you know, with the support of machine learning to identify the correct variables and kind of improve our risk discrimination. That's been around for a long time yeah. and being made use by us and others. True like AI, generative AI in credit models. I mean, the one of the flaws here is obviously you can only train your models on data they've already seen. Right. And we certainly haven't seen it all. <laughs> right. uh, and this current environment we're in is, is quite different. We do have to be cognizant of the regulatory guidance, as I'm sure you saw the CFPB sort of sending, sounding a note. So we want to make sure we understand what the right parameters are to engage. But there's an enormous amount of progress here and possibility in all kinds of places, whether it's the QAing of code or even the generation of simple code frameworks to increase engineering productivity, improve the efficiency of your customer response uh, staff by kind of maybe generating templated responses for you to review as opposed to, you know, drafting from scratch. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting use cases here. And even within marketing to kind of actually craft the message that is tailored to a unique segment based on data. So there's a lot of interesting applications here. As a regulated bank, we are making sure we're doing that within the confines of what's viewed to be uh, permissible by by the regulators, but certainly incredibly excited about what it can mean for productivity, efficiency, and then, you know, eventually customer outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah, I was um, flashing back to your history as a, a marketer. I'm sure younger you would have loved to get your hands on these tools and experiment with them in all kinds of ways. I do not have the same obligation as a humble newsletter writer to be quite so careful with it. So my experiments tend to range into all kinds of interesting and potentially troubling directions. Scott, I know you're busy. I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. We've had a few of these conversations offline, so I'm glad we were able to actually record this one. Hopefully you'll come back again in the future. All right. Thanks for having me. Great to catch up. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.